Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Coming up this hour, Highland Park shooting victims are fighting back with a lawsuit against the gun industry. We'll hear about a new state law now in effect. It requires schools to teach about Asian American history. Illinois will have a new Secretary of State for the first time this century. Jesse White is retiring. We'll look at the candidates vying to replace him. And we'll hear more about climate change in Mississippi River communities. It is Halloween weekend. We'll hear about the Illinois ties to a famous film that shows up every year at this time. And look back to a famous radio broadcast on Halloween Eve, 1938. Orson Welles' The War of the Worlds. Those stories and more this hour. Stay right here for Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. This hour, we'll preview the race for Illinois Secretary of State. It's the first election in nearly a quarter of a century where Jesse White is not on the ballot. We'll hear how climate change is impacting communities along the Mississippi River and a well-known movie villain and the character's ties to Illinois. That and more coming up on Statewide. It's been nearly four months since the July 4th shooting in Highland Park that left seven people dead and dozens wounded. The victims filed a set of lawsuits recently against the gunmaker Smith & Wesson, two gun stores, the alleged shooter, and his father. As Anna Sevchenko reports, the victims are hoping to hold the gun industry accountable and also find some sense of closure. Lauren Bennett was shot twice in the back on July 4th at the Highland Park Parade. Imagine a hot metal dart-like projectile tearing through your body faster than the speed of sound. That's her at a recent press conference where her lawyers announced the lawsuits. All eyes and cameras were on her. As nervous as I was and I was shaking and my heart was beating so hard, but it almost felt therapeutic because it's my words, my truth. Bennett was there that day with her husband, two of her sons, her parents, her in-laws. Her mom and mother-in-law suffered gun wounds, too. I asked her what it's like to think about the shooting now, almost four months later. It is terrifying because it's constantly on my mind. The sounds of bullets, the sights of bullets around me, how quick it could happen out in the open. She's angry, too. The anger is deep with that. I'm trying not to touch into that too much. But as she says that, Bennett tenses up. This is about my family, and we are not the same. We will never be the same. I have injuries painted on my body that I have to look at every day. And this lawsuit is her way of fighting back. Because anything that could help prevent this from the future, I'm on board and I will put my face out there for the cause. She and the other plaintiffs are trying to put an end to these mass shootings. They're going after gunmaker Smith & Wesson, which makes the assault rifle police say was used. Smith & Wesson, the two gun stores, the alleged shooter, and his father wouldn't comment on the lawsuits. Specifically, the suits allege that Smith & Wesson used deceptive marketing strategies. And Antonio Romanucci, one of the lawyers working on the lawsuits, says they motivate young men. To use these weapons for a purpose that really these guns weren't designed for. Historically, victims of gun violence had little success suing gun manufacturers over deaths and injuries caused by firearms. That changed earlier this year 
when victims of the 2012 Sandy Hook shooting settled with gunmaker Remington for $73 million. By targeting Remington's marketing practices, the attorneys created a new legal strategy. The Sandy Hook plaintiffs are really um, one of the only three times that plaintiffs have brought these lawsuits against firearms manufacturers and received a settlement of any kind. Timothy Lytton is with Georgia State University. He studied lawsuits against the firearms industry for decades. No plaintiff um, has ever won a jury award or won in court, but there have been a handful of settlements. And the idea that you could pursue a case far enough to get to settlement, I think was something that's probably attractive to the uh, attorneys in the Highland Park case. And it represents a, a possible strategy. One that Lytton said could give the Highland Park victims a real chance of winning this legal battle. But the personal battle of coming to terms with what happened on July 4th is one the Bennetts fight day to day. They're grieving in different ways. Her husband and nine-year-old son are math and science kind of guys. They like facts. So from the beginning, you know, they just took the emotion out and had to go through what happened, piece everything together. Bennett is trying to hold it together for her kids, she says, to do what she can to protect their innocence. She herself has found comfort in talking to other witnesses. You know, I just want to know all the details. What do they remember? I'm kind of my own little journalist just because I want it to make sense in my head. The lawsuit is helping in that way, too, helping her try to connect the dots that led to the shooting and to demand accountability. Anna Savchenka, WBEZ News. Illinois will soon have a new Secretary of State for the first time in nearly a quarter of a century. Longtime Republican legislator Dan Brady of Bloomington says he waited until Jesse White retired before running for the office. Brady will face Democrat Alexei Janulius, a well-financed opponent seeking his second statewide office. Eric Stock has this report. Republican Dan Brady has served 22 years in the Illinois House. There are currently no Republicans in statewide office. Brady wants to change that by pledging to improve the customer experience at driver's license facilities. He says it'll take technology and possibly a staff reorganization to reduce wait times and frustration. Making the work environment a um, less confrontational and a more efficient area is going to help both sides of the counter. Brady has proposed making vehicle title and lien filing electronic to speed up that process. He says another idea to reduce wait times at the DMV, lease space at nearby community colleges. He says the technology and accessibility are already there. Those are all built in supported taxpayers' uh, assets there right now that we could uh, tap into. And that would be another area that I think would be a, an acute way to bring some relief to the problems that occur in the facilities across the state. Each Secretary of State candidate is hesitant to criticize Democrat Jesse White for the 24 years he ran the office, but they all suggest technology upgrades and other reforms are overdue. Democrat Alexei Janulius is a former U.S. Senate candidate from Chicago. He served one term as state treasurer. Janulius says his plans to modernize the office go farther than Brady's. They include an option to schedule a DMV appointment online. The differences in our policy proposals could not be more stark. We're the only ones who talk about skip the line. We're the only ones who talk about digital driver's license and IDs. We're the only ones who talk about the creation of a Secretary of State app. We're the only ones talking about kiosks inside the DMVs. Janulius projects these technology upgrades would save the state money. When you cut foot traffic by 50 to 75 percent and there's less paperwork as people are doing things virtually and online, uh, you save uh, an exorbitant amount of money. 
Ginoliga says the savings would come from shrinking the size and number of driver's license facilities and trimming staff. He did not say how much staff he might cut. Car dealers have their own trouble with the DMV delays. That's according to a longtime auto dealer who is running for Secretary of State as a Libertarian. John Stewart of Deerfield is a former pro wrestler who ran for the Illinois House and U.S. Senate more than 20 years ago. Stewart says he would look to add satellite DMV offices in Chicago to reduce congestion at existing sites. Taking the pressure off of Elston Avenue in Chicago, and folks, if you ever have, you have not been there, it's it's uh, especially during COVID, it was like a uh, it was like a third world country food line. It, w- it was awful. Stewart says he would recoup the money by banning new Secretary of State hires from the state pension system. That would require legislative approval a concept that would likely find little support from lawmakers. Stewart also wants to reduce license and title fees and increase the title fee for dealers. The Secretary of State's office is largely administrative, but that doesn't keep politics out of the race. Alexi Giannulli said at a recent campaign event, Republicans are, quote, bananas and has linked Dan Brady to Donald Trump. Brady took exception to any link to the former president. Dan Brady's his own man. Um, For anyone to say I'm a a Trumper or I'm a this or a that, um, you know, that's the kind of thing that people like to to put out to divide people, uh, to mislead people. Janulia says he sees fundamental differences between the two parties. On issues that are important to me, uh, like integrity, choice, you know, kids getting murdered in in schools, I think there's a difference in, in the way the parties do it. Most importantly, when it comes to this office, is this fight for voting rights. Janulia says he wants to pre-register 16 and 17-year-olds to vote when they get their driver's license, as about a dozen other states do. Brady says local election authorities could take over motor voter registration, a move Janulia calls dangerous and ineffective. The Republican Party has done its own flame-throwing in this race. State GOP Chair Don Tracy said putting Janulius in charge of the Secretary of State's office would be like putting an arsonist in charge of the fire department. Tracy was referring to the Janulius family bank that federal regulators seized in 2010 over loans the bank gave to convicted felons. The Secretary of State's office regulates loan brokers and investment advisors in Illinois. Dan Brady says Janulius's bank history is a red flag. I think somebody with the past that my opponent uh, is, is, has and has been well documented, uh, I'm not sure that's the person you want to hire for this job. Janulius brushed aside the criticism as a sign of Brady's desperation. When you're down double digits in the polls, you, you try and say whatever you can. There's a reason we've been endorsed by um, <laughs> every newspaper that's made an endorsement. We've talked about ideas. Janulius has a major financial advantage in this campaign. Based on the latest filings at the end of September, Janulius has $2.5 million in his campaign war chest, 10 times that of Brady. The Janulius campaign recently got a million dollars from billionaire Governor J.B. Pritzker. Brady has not found a deep-pocketed donor on the GOP side. Brady notes he was outspent in the Republican primary when he handily defeated the party's chosen candidate, former U.S. Attorney John Milheiser. It was a grassroots effort in the primary. It's a grassroots effort in the general. It's an entirely grassroots campaign for libertarian John Stewart. Stewart also wasn't his party's first pick. Someone named Jesse White, not the Secretary of State, tried to run on the Libertarian ticket. Stewart claims the Janulius camp threatened to bankrupt the party with petition challenges, so the party found another candidate. When asked about Stewart's allegation, Janulius said he'd never heard of him, and he suggested putting another Jesse White on the ballot was a political stunt. I don't think 
there should be an attempt to confuse people as to which Secretary of State White is on the ballot or not. The Libertarian Party hopes to get at least 5% of the votes in at least one statewide race. That would make it an established political party and significantly reduce the number of signatures candidates would need to get on the ballot in the future. I'm Eric. Election Day is November 8th and early voting is underway. Since 2020, school districts across the country have been using millions of federal COVID dollars to improve airflow and quality in their classrooms. Peter Medlin ended up on a middle school roof, finding out how districts are bringing air conditioning to students who've never had it. So these are some of the new stuff from this year? Yes, this is new. And what are they? These are the air conditioning for the common cafeteria. We hadn't had air conditioning in that area until this past summer. That's Tammy Carson. The first guy you heard besides me is James Orr, and they work maintenance and facilities for the DeKalb School District. And we're on top of Huntley Middle School. And like Tammy mentioned, they just use federal COVID relief funds to install new rooftop HVAC units so that the gymnasium, locker rooms, and cafeteria finally have air conditioning. It could get really humid in the fall and spring without it. And students have been sweating through it since the school went up in the mid-60s. Luckily, all of DeKalb's classrooms have heat and air conditioning. It might not be the most scintillating topic for some, but having air conditioning in classrooms is a huge deal. Studies have repeatedly shown that without AC, when temperatures in the classroom go up, learning and academic performance go way down. Some schools aren't as lucky. Even in 2022, they don't have proper HVAC systems. Mark Ekstrom has seen how boiling hot classrooms hurt learning. He's the director of buildings and grounds in Sycamore and used to be the principal at Southeast Elementary when they didn't have AC. Sometimes those rooms were 97, 98 degrees as you're coming through because it was whatever temperature outside, you opened up the windows the best you can and then we're just blowing hot air back and forth. And once we added air to those buildings and see the amount of uh, work that we were getting out of kids in August and September when the temperatures were hot outside but the building was cool, was amazing. Sycamore started upgrading air handlers just before the pandemic. The timing worked out well. They got better airflow with the air handlers and additional air purifiers as students returned in the fall of 2020. They've replaced half of them in the district so far. And this year, they installed AC in a whole wing of Sycamore High School for the first time. That includes 14 classrooms. Ekstrom says the rooms that still don't have it don't have students all day, like the attendance office and home economics lab. Rockford Public Schools has 41 buildings, and of those, only 10 are fully air-conditioned. It's why Chief Operations Officer Michael Phillips says the federal money is a game-changer. Earlier this year, the district launched a $160 million AC and air quality improvement project. Three of our big projects this year were Lincoln Middle School, East High School, and Washington Elementary School, which are all multi-story buildings all had steam radiators for heat and no no other air conditioning. They say they want to use that federal money for AC and cooling infrastructure in every RPS classroom over the next three years. It's a tall order. There are 16 RPS schools where there are 20 or more classrooms that don't have AC. Five schools have 50-plus classrooms without air conditioning. Public records WNIJ received show that at many of those schools, classrooms, including some special ed rooms, go without air conditioning, but the main office, principal's office, and even the principal's bathrooms are equipped with AC units. Those rooms, though, are more likely to be used year-round. But year-round learning happens, too. There are school programs and activities all summer. But without air conditioning at most schools, Phillips says it means the programs get housed in the same few every year. 
It even makes maintenance more challenging. It's important to be able to take a building offline for a summer. You know, while we try to deep clean, it becomes difficult when you're running several programs throughout the summer. And since schools get to use federal relief from the CARES Act and ESSER funds on HVAC projects, Tammy Carson DeKalb says it means they can use their normal maintenance budget on other issues they might not usually have the time or money for. This past summer, I was able to do several projects of flooring replacements in different buildings and playground replacements where I may not have been able to do those projects this past year. And while new HVAC might not sound as exciting as a new playground, Carstens has a classroom of kids feeling fresh, cool air while the sun bears down outside makes a massive impact on how well they learn. I'm Peter Medlin. Coming up on Statewide, what is the impact climate change is having along the Mississippi River? We'll have that story next. We're back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Still to come, a famous radio broadcast at Halloween time, it frightened the nation. Or did it? That's ahead. Climate change is bringing heavier and more intense rain to the Mississippi River Basin, flooding towns and infrastructure. The Mississippi River Basin Ag and Water Desk has found that annual rainfall is increasing every year, forcing some communities to relocate, others to make room for the water, and farmers to adapt their practices to a changing growing season. As part of a special series, When It Rains, Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco reports on how communities in the Mississippi River Basin have had to adapt to survive. After back-to-back downpours in Freeport, Illinois, earlier this summer, the Pecatonic River jumped its banks and flooded the city, drowning parks and washing out streets. All told, it was a relatively mild flood, Freeport's fifth in only the past four years. It's something Lori Thomas and her mother have almost grown accustomed to. Their house is flooded at least 15 times, but for them, moving to higher ground is not an option. The historically black community on the east side of town is home. People have always lived over here, and there's always been the Pecatonica, but lately the floods have been worse, but they've been worse everywhere else too. That's not a reason to kick people out of their homes. Two years after a massive flood in 2019, the Federal Emergency Management Agency granted the city of Freeport over $3 million to buy out properties in the floodplain. City officials say the average home on the east side is valued at around $15,000. Homeowners can be offered up to an additional $31,000. That's just not enough money for Thomas's mother to pick up and start over elsewhere. She's lived here for decades. The lady over there is in a wheelchair. She's been there all her life. These are older people. Where the hell are they going? Increased rainfall triggered by the climate crisis is causing more frequent flooding in small river communities. American infrastructure wasn't designed for this level of crisis. It's causing economic strain, impacting quality of life, and forcing people to make hard decisions about whether to stay or leave. 
so some municipalities are shifting away from traditional mitigation tactics, like levees and berms, according to Laura Lightbody, who directs the Pew Charitable Trust Flood Prepared Communities Initiative. The old way isn't working for today's population. And so that has resulted in rethinking the engineering solution versus sort of a new look at within the role that nature can play. 400 miles west of Freeport in Atchison County, Missouri, Reagan Griffin makes his way through the tall grasses of what used to be farmland along the Missouri River, another tributary of the Mississippi. He's a corn and soy farmer and is on the Atchison County Levee Board. He stops at a pond that marks a breach from the last devastating flood in 2019. That, I'm pretty sure, was the crest of the levee. I think it ran right through here. And then this was a hole that got eaten out through it. 2019 was the third major flood that devastated the small farming community in the last 30 years. It seems like we're getting more extreme examples of flooding, more extreme issues with water, so we need to start looking at this differently. The Atchison Levee Board proposed a levee setback, making room for the Missouri to flood. With the help of the Army Corps of Engineers and other organizations and agencies, the levee was moved, reconnecting over a thousand acres of floodplain. Our reporters found that communities throughout the basin are coming up with creative ideas like this to address flooding. The need is huge, and federal officials are starting to notice the need. You know, you're talking tens or hundreds of billions of dollars to mitigate the effects of climate change, sea level rise, aging infrastructures. Eric Lepvin is the Federal Emergency Management Agency's Deputy Assistant Administrator for Mitigation. In 2020, the agency launched the Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Program, geared toward funding large, locally-led projects that fortify areas before disasters strike. Every dollar from the federal government counts, and so far, inland Mississippi River communities have received less money from this program than coastal ones, according to a Headwaters economic analysis. Lettman says that's in part because rural inland communities have a hard time applying for the funds. Some states have more hazard mitigation staff at the state level than others and are able to um, help provide more assistance and help generate more applications. But Pew's Lightbody says communities need to come up with local resources as well. As she sees it, the federal government just doesn't have enough money. They don't have the resources to fully rebuild communities time and time again which is why creative local solutions are so important. No one knows how river communities will look 100 years from now, but most experts can agree change is necessary to create a better and safer future. And the time to act is now, instead of waiting for the next flood. In Freeport, Illinois, I'm Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco. Co-reporting that story was Eva Tesfai, Madeline Heim, Brittany Miller, and also Haley Parker. It was October 30th, 1938. Many who tuned into Orson Welles' dramatization of the War of the Worlds were entertained. Others were panicked that what they heard coming out of their radio was describing an actual Martian invasion, as they had missed an opening announcement about the program. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquel and his orchestra. The production began with music, setting up the listener for a normal evening, before urgent news reports broke in. 
Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. I talked with author Tara McClellan McAndrew. She wrote about this moment in broadcast history. So, Tara, why do we remember a radio program that was broadcast more than 80 years ago? It is known for allegedly having panicked America, millions in America, who thought that this was a true news broadcast about Martians invading our country. The newspaper reports that everyone across America or many across America were panicked and frightened have since been contested. It's clear that there were people who were very frightened by this. It seems silly today that people would believe that this was really happening, but there are reasons for why that occurred, and a lot of it was the production value that was put into this program. That's correct. And they had some of the top people um, in radio working on this, both in terms of the sound effects crew and actors and writers. One of the things that made this so realistic, and that was what Wells wanted. He thought that the original script was really pretty dull and boring. So he wanted it to be bumped up in realism. And so some of the things they did to do that were add very realistic sound effects such as shouts and screams, and even down to the sound of the Martians' aircraft opening up. Another thing that made it so real was the use of what appeared to be real news bulletins. Uh, This was a technique that, although others were using it, Orson's theater did an exceptional job of making those bulletins sound very, very real. Wait a minute, something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. And make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Now the whole field's caught up by the woods of fires, the, the gas tank, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. You mentioned there were reports that the whole country was in a panic over this. What have you found out? Was that was that overblown, the uh, the magnitude of the concern that, that this program generated? In retrospect, yes. Many uh, who have studied this have come to believe that that was overblown by the newspaper media. And one of the people who studied this is A. Brad Schwartz. He's the author of Broadcast Hysteria, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds and the Art of Fake News. He researched letters that were written to Welles in his theater after the broadcast. And here's what he says about the media um, exaggerating People may not know this, but Orson Welles is from the Midwest. He was born in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and he spent quite a bit of time in Illinois. 
Yes, Orson attended a school called Todd School for the Boys that was in Woodstock, Illinois. And he went there for five years when he was a pretty young young boy. And the headmaster of that school, Roger Hill, became his mentor, his lifelong friend, a collaborator, um, and kind of his unofficial foster father. And I talked to Hill's grandson, Todd Tarbox, who now lives in Colorado. And he talked about how the school really shaped Wells's theatrical abilities. When given a choice, he would select a play that, that uh, would startle rather than not. For some people, something like War of the Worlds, the, the bad publicity that came about, you wrote about the fact there was legislation that was talked about after this to prevent such things from happening. There were threats of lawsuits. It might have wrecked somebody's career. It did not derail Orson Welles. He went on to much bigger and better things, and this may have been the launching pad for that. That's exactly right. Uh, Orson was uh, supposedly said the day after the broadcast that, well, if I had wanted to wreck my career, I certainly did a good job of it or something to that effect. The opposite was true. His radio company, Mercury Theater on Air, received after this broadcast, which allegedly caused panic throughout the country, received a sponsor for the first time, and it was no small sponsor. It was Campbell's Soup. And Hollywood got interested in, in uh, Wells after this. As a result of that interest, Wells was able to go on and direct what many consider his cinematic masterpiece, Citizen Kane, which has gone down in many lists of the best of American cinema. So this ended up propelling Wells's career, which is not at all what he or his company would have expected that night after the broadcast, as they were terror-stricken and were accused by the media of having caused the suicide of people, the mass panic of people, etc. And in fact, Wells and his theater company had horrible expectations for this show. They thought that it was dull and boring. And the reason it was so good is because they worked so hard at making it more realistic. And one of the ways they did that was, as you mentioned, some of the uh, some of the sound effects that were used. Also, the way that news reporting was was filtered into this program to make it sound like it was a bulletin. It it had that feel of another famous broadcast from that era, the the Hindenburg disaster. In fact, they were quite aware of that when they put this together, from what you've written. Absolutely. The Hindenburg disaster happened only one year before this broadcast. And for those who may not remember, the Hindenburg was an airship made by the Germans, and it was making headlines all over the world because it was flying from Germany, Frankfurt, to America, New Jersey. And when it was landing or mooring at its dock, um, it famously burst into flames, crashed, and killed, oh, dozens. And there was a WLS radio reporter, Herbert Morrison, who famously did an on-the-scene report broadcast later about watching the Hindenburg fall. And uh, let's listen to it here. And it's falling on the morning fast, and all the folks between that this is terrible, this is the one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's, 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 it's like 20, 
falls four or five hundred feet into the sky, and it, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the flames crashing to the ground, not quite to the mooring mass. All the humanity and all the fans are just speeding around it. What happened during the production of War of the Worlds broadcast for Wells Theater was that the actor who played the news reporter watching the Martians invade, Frank Reddick, went to the archives in CBS, got out the famous, iconic Hindenburg radio broadcast that our WLS reporter in Illinois had done, and listened to it over and over. And he tried to copy it in tone, in pace, in emotion. What is the lasting legacy of the War of the Worlds broadcast? Excellent question. I am going to let A. Brad Schwartz answer that again. He wrote, Broadcast Hysteria, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds and the Art of Fake News. You know, the great fear that this show created among the American public was not that this was a Martian invasion, but that it was a demonstration of how dangerous radio was going to be to democracy. Because it's, you know, the late 1930s, people have seen what's happening in Germany and in other parts of Europe. Um, they're terribly afraid that we could have an American dictator, uh, someone who manipulates the radio the way they understood Hitler to have done in Germany um, to rise to, you know, to a position of power in this country. And hearing the story that you know, any number of people believe the show to be true and, and, and acted irrationally, confirmed that fear in their mind. And so that ends up being what motivates a lot of the, the response to the show, both in the letters that were written and in a lot of the newspaper commentary. Of course, everyone has a different opinion about what the lesson is or was still today from the iconic War of the Worlds broadcast. I like to think that one of the lessons is the potential of broadcast to make us think, to make us imagine. So that I think is one of the reasons that this is still such an amazing broadcast because it did such a good job of making the unbelievable believable. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. That's author Tara McClellan McAndrew. She wrote about Orson Welles' famous broadcast of War of the Worlds on Halloween Eve 1938. You can read more about it. We have a link to her article at our website. Just go to nprillinois.org. Look for Statewide. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be the Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. We'll stay with a scary Halloween theme next. We'll hear the Illinois angle of a serial killer on film. Welcome back to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Well, you probably didn't know that central Illinois is the hunting ground for one of the most famous serial killers in American history. He likes big knives, stalking babysitters, and mutilating the bodies of his victims. But don't worry, he's not real. Ryan Denham explains. 
Michael Myers is the white-masked villain in 1978's Halloween, a slasher movie that revolutionized the horror genre. The franchise has endured these past 44 years, including four reboots and some very silly sequels. The 13th movie in that series, Halloween Ends, comes out October 14th. The Halloween movies take place in the fictional Haddonfield, Illinois. Clues sprinkled throughout the movies reveal that if Haddonfield really did exist, it would be located near Pontiac, right along Interstate 55. Other hints suggest it's something of a doppelganger for Bloomington Normal. John Carpenter wrote and directed the original 1978 film and has executive produced the more recent ones. We were looking for a small-town America where this whole drama could play out. So we invented Haddonfield, Illinois. The name hit perfectly. The name was borrowed from Haddonfield, New Jersey, near where co-writer and producer Deborah Hill grew up. Carpenter himself is from a college town in Kentucky, not Illinois. While Illinois has racked up the Halloween body count, it has not reaped the economic benefit of Hollywood movie making. Movies have all been shot elsewhere places like Southern California, Utah, and South Carolina. On the original 1978 shoot in LA, the cost-conscious crew used and reused a big bag of fake leaves to recreate the fall foliage-lined streets of an Illinois town. So when we shot our, uh, the movie, we just had to watch out for palm trees. We uh, did not succeed in getting rid of all the palm trees, but uh, we tried. Carpenter says they took special care in location scouting to get that right architectural style of the houses. There are some houses here, built here in Los Angeles, that are from the 1920s, and they look kind of hometown Haddonfield-ish. Bloomington native and Halloween superfan John Anderson is able to look past the occasional geographic goof, a mountain range, or a California license plate in the background. He says the overall vibe of an Illinois town is spot on. Looks like where I grew up. This looks like where I rode my bike. You know, this looks like where I went trick-or-treating. It has that, it's palpable on screen. And maybe that's why it resonates so much with people like us and of our, of our age that came up at that time. A franchise with 13 movies obviously produces a lot of fans, like Anderson and, full disclosure, Me Too. Fans have tracked four decades of movie clues to hypothesize the size and shape of Haddonfield. Carpenter says in his mind, Haddonfield has around 30,000 residents, about the size of Galesburg or Pekin. The later movies have had conflicting views on this. Haddonfield is apparently big enough to have a good-sized hospital, community college, a country club, two daily newspapers, but it's also small enough that the Warren County Sheriff's Department is the primary law enforcement agency in town. Death has come to your little town, Sheriff. It is very much in the real world. In Halloween, the University of Illinois, the Illinois Department of Corrections, and the Illinois State Police all exist and are referenced. In the sixth film, a character played by the actor Paul Rudd visits a bus terminal where a map prominently plops Haddonfield right on the I-55 corridor north of Bloomington and Pontiac. Can you tell me if a bus arrived from Pontiac last night? Sure did. Are you looking for someone? Here's John Anderson again. That was the first one that I recall specifically, like seeing seeing our town's name on screen. If I didn't jump out of my seat in the theater, I'm sure I elbowed, sharply elbowed my friends next to me. It was incredible. It gets weirder, too. In the 2021 movie Halloween Kills, a Haddonfield resident who is trying to hunt down Michael Myers is plotting his next move, looking at a map. 
The map is of East Bloomington, and he points right at 313 Carl Drive. That's the address where Bloomington's most infamous real crime took place back in 1983, the quadruple murder of Susan Hendricks and her three children with an axe and kitchen knife. Husband and father David Hendricks was convicted, but later retried and acquitted. That connection was pointed out to me by John Wyatt Dannenberger of Bloomington, another Halloween and John Carpenter aficionado. There must be a true crime fan that's on the production team of the new Halloween trilogy because the coincidence is too astronomical to believe. So what would it be like to live in Haddonfield, where a guy in a mask kills people, escapes custody, kills people, escapes custody, rinse and repeat? Well, you can expect a lot of generational trauma. That would be compounded by the fact that Michael Myers is not some external force. He's a hometown boy. Eric Wesselman is an Illinois State University psychology professor who has taught and researched horror movies. It gets you where you think you're safe. Holidays, small town where nothing interesting ever happens. And I think that Haddonfield definitely gives that sense that, you know, everybody knows everybody. These uh, events that would occur would reverberate across the community, eventually become their own folk tales. In the movies, that has manifested into mobs of Haddonfield residents trying to take matters into their own hands, frustrated that police have not been able to apprehend Michael Myers. The most recent film, Halloween Kills, leaned heavily into the torches and pitchforks reaction of the community. Evil dies tonight! Evil dies tonight! All right, everybody, calm down. The sheriff's department... No, 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 sheriff, we will not calm down. We have watched your department fail. Fail tonight! This is Haddonfield! This is our town! And that is actually not so far-fetched, according to Bill Lally, who has a PhD in criminology and is taught at ISU and Eureka College. Lally is also police chief in Deer Creek, Illinois, a town of about 700 just northwest of Bloomington Normal. We still have incidences of the public wanting to, I don't want to say take the law in their own hands, but they certainly want to be involved in the process. If an escaped mental patient like Michael Myers really started killing people, Lally says a multi-agency task force would likely form to catch him. The manhunt wouldn't be left to a single sheriff's department and Michael Myers' pistol-wielding psychiatrist. And it wouldn't be a very long movie. Michael Myers would pop up on ring cameras all over town. The likelihood that they would be able to avoid eventual uh, detection and capture I think is relatively low. Ultimately, none of that matters because 65-year-old Michael Myers is still on the loose. John Carpenter, the director, says the fandom around his creation was unexpected. It just keeps coming. It's a gift. You never know when these things happen. Everybody just tries to make a good movie. Sometimes they really hit like this. Reporting from Haddonfield, I'm Ryan Denham. For many people, fall is marked by taking trips to the pumpkin patch, getting lost in a corn maze, or catching a hayride. All of those activities are part of what's known as agricultural tourism, and it's a booming industry. Excaret Nunez reports welcoming visitors to their farms is also a source of income for producers. It's a crisp fall afternoon at the P-Bar Farms and Lauren Liebscher is driving families on his tractor to take them to his pumpkin patch. We're almost there, I see the pumpkins. Liebscher has been running his seasonal agritourism attraction for 21 years in the small town of Hydro, Oklahoma. We started with just three things. We had a pumpkin patch, a corn maze, and a petting zoo. 
Liebscher says he got into the agritourism business after he grew tired and stressed from being a wheat farmer. He got the idea to do a corn maze from an article in an ag magazine about a farmer making big profits off his maze. He said, okay, the corn in the maze is worth $1,000. Or he said, I just grossed $100,000 doing agritainment. Do you think I really care about the corn? <laughs> the U.S. Department of Agriculture estimates that agritourism, everything from corn mazes to apple orchards, has grown to nearly a billion-dollar industry. Kendra Meyer is an agritourism specialist for Iowa State University's Extension Office. More and more people are moving to urban areas, and so people are removed just one step further from the farm life. And so getting out on the farm, you know, being able to see that apple they picked where it came from rather than just going and picking it up in the grocery store um, is a fun and exciting thing. Meyer says farmers she talks to typically get into agritourism as a way to make a side income. But it also allows farmers to share their story with visitors. And when you share that with, you know, to someone coming on your farm, it it gives you a connection that you feel immediately with that farmer. And at least for me, I know it makes me feel good about buying my produce there because it's someone you trust. It's someone you know. Gerilyn and Alan Huffling have run their Huffling Pumpkin Patch and Corn Maze near Marcus, Iowa, as a side business for the past 26 years. They don't charge visitors to enter their patch, only for the pumpkins people pick off the vine. Our passion for starting the pumpkin patch was having a place for families to go. I always tell people, first and foremost, we are a pumpkin patch. I want people to go out and pick. But getting started in agritourism isn't the easiest thing to do. Tara Peters and her husband have owned a pumpkin patch in Rolla, Missouri for 12 years. So when we started the pumpkin patch, you know, we kind of didn't know what we were doing. Today, Peters is a member of the Missouri Farm Bureau's Agritourism Committee. She says they learn from other farmers how to build up their business. When you're starting out, that's who you rely on. People that have done it before, and then you come share what works for you and what doesn't work for you, and then you grow from there. Back on the P-Bar farms, a three-year-old girl is looking around to pick out her first pumpkin. A pumpkin! It's moments like these Lauren Liebscher says he'll miss. After two decades, he's put his farm up for sale. His wife had health issues last year, and he says it's time to move on. It'll be hard for me because it's been such a huge part of my life, and, and I've spent a lot of time and effort in agritourism. Liebscher hopes the next owner of his corn maze will put as much passion into the business as he did. I'm Excret Nunez. Illinois schools are required to begin teaching a unit on Asian American history this year. That's due to a new state law called the TEACH Act. Susie Ann reports on how some schools are rolling out their lessons. Read a little bit of background information. Um, In Zach Schroeder's social studies class, eighth graders are learning about labor movements. While students at Skinner North on Chicago's north side are familiar with the work of Cesar Chavez and the National Farm Workers Association, today's lesson focuses on Filipino-American labor organizer Larry Itliong, a person most students and teachers have never heard of. How his identity helped him be a powerful civic actor, and not just him, it was Filipino farm workers in general. Students break up into groups and talk about why the efforts of Filipino-American farm workers aren't as widely known. They also talk about the importance of the group merging with Mexican farm workers. Student Ashling Panjwani didn't know about the Filipino farm workers until this lesson. I think it's very important. I'm glad that we have it, um, and I think it highlights a lot of 
stories that maybe weren't as prominent that maybe need to be highlighted more. Under the TEACH Act, schools around Illinois are supposed to teach a unit of AAPI history starting this year. It's meant to boost cross-cultural education for all students and advance racial equity. Schools can take different approaches. Schroeder is weaving Asian American history throughout the year rather than one unit. This lesson today, it talks about the labor struggle and how integral not just Asian Americans, but Latinx people, Mexican American people were together. And so I think it's just natural to smooth that out throughout U.S. history. Schroeder says the more lenses you can add to history, the richer it becomes. Smitha Garg is a parent at Skinner North and also helped lead teacher trainings on ways to add Asian American history. She's Asian American and has a background in education, but this was a learning experience for her as well. I did not know this content. So what I try to convey to teachers up front in the sessions is that it's okay not to know. You know, let's give ourselves grace for what we don't know, but then also hold ourselves accountable for learning. Garg says she's done trainings for entire school districts and even individual teachers from outside the state have signed up. There's also a free curriculum database that teachers can incorporate into their lessons for any grade level. In Oak Park, teacher Nichelle Stigger has taken it upon herself to incorporate Asian American history into her classroom at Gwendolyn Brooks Middle School. Her sixth grade language and literature class is reading, This Book is Anti-Racist. Students watched a video about an Asian American studies program in a California prison, and then they discussed their own family backgrounds and identities. Sixth grader Ahmed Maros, whose family is from the Middle East and North Africa, works on a family tree activity. He says the lessons have helped him learn about himself and others. It's not just like reading a book and then answering some questions. We really get to like know ourselves and we learn about real world events that are happening. Stigger says it's a first for her teaching the Asian American experience and she thinks it's an important piece. We didn't talk about Asian Americans at all except for when the trauma was happening in the news. We talked about it but we didn't do a lesson or take a moment to read a poem. She says the history department at her school is still developing its Asian American unit, but she thought it would be a misstep to teach anti-racism and not include the Asian American experience. Just because we are all people of color, our stories are not a monolith, and it's important for us to, to really understand that and, and hear it. Smitha Garg says through this process, she's realized how much was missing from her own high school education during the late 90s. American history was the history of old white men, you know, and that's what it was. I think I started to understand why I didn't like AP U.S. history. It's not that I couldn't attain that, you know, it's not that I couldn't get to that level, it's that I just didn't like it. I didn't feel connected to it. She hopes teaching about the diversity of the Asian community helps all students feel better connected. She says Asian American history is American history. Susie on WBEZ News. And we're out of time for this week's Statewide. Thanks for being with us and join us next week for more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can find our episodes. They're all available at the website nprillinois.org. Just look for Statewide. And also you can find our weekly podcast through the NPR One app. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations.